This is UCD Business Impact, a new podcast series from the UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. And just to give you a little bit of background on how we were recording these Business Impact podcasts, we are engaging in a bit of improvisation. I am in an upstairs room using Zoom and most of our guests are likewise either in their kitchen or in one of their rooms so we are looking to adapt but just to make you aware of that's how we are adapting here at the UCD Business School in putting these podcasts together. I'm your host Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now I'm joined on the Business Impact podcast today by Professor Pat Gibbons and he really is a distinguished strategy thinker, I suppose, is the best way to put um, what Pat is. He's also published widely in the area. He's talking to me as we adapt to these current conditions. Uh, first of all, welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Emmett. Look forward to it. I, I have sort of a, a slight weakness for strategy slogans. And one that comes to mind is obviously the old Michael Porter thing of the best strategy is not what to do. But the one I actually find more interesting in the current era we're living in is the one from Peter Drucker, which is the greatest danger in a turbulent period is not the turbulence, but acting with yesterday's logic. And, right. and I think what really, really makes that interesting is trying to define what is that logic. So none of us are going to necessarily agree on that. But we tend to stick with the plans and strategies we have because they're comforting and they're things we're familiar with. And to take a lift and uh, take a turbulent turning point at the time to change isn't necessarily that easy, particularly when you're just trying to keep the, the roof on the building in the first place. So I suppose to get this conversation kicked off, I wanted to try and explore, is strategy at all relevant? And what I mean by that is we generally talk about strategy as being something that's long term, as something very purposeful and deliberative. Um, if you're just trying to keep a business turning over, an organization turning over, is this the time to be looking at strategy at all? Or would you see that as an absolute imperative? You won't be surprised to hear that I think it's an absolute imperative. And I think frequently we, we, confu- we sometimes confuse the word strategy with a, a plan. And undoubtedly, there's a planful aspect of strategy. But ultimately, strategy is managing, I think, the tension between the aspiration that an organization has and its capability in the face of a changing environment. So we have these three little balls in the air, the aspiration, what it is we want to achieve, the capability in a way, what, what resources and sets of skills do we have to sort of help us achieve what we want to achieve. But we also have to be cognizant that the world is changing around us in ways that we didn't necessarily anticipate when we developed the plan. So there can be a planful aspect of of strategy and and it can be useful to have a plan. A few quotes. I know Dwight Eisenhower once said that the plans are nothing, but planning is everything. And I think the planning is everything part is because planning can help us crystallize the aspiration and it certainly helps us assess critically what our capabilities are. But then I think strategy is the art of, if you like, executing the plan but in a way that we anticipate that the, the, the assumptions we make in the plan, if you like, about how the environment is going to react or how our competitors are going to react or how the world is going to look around us, that those assumptions may be, may be false. To quote another general, uh, there's a, general, a Prussian general called von Molk, who said that no plan survives contact with the enemy. 
and, and Mike Tyson has a version of that and says everyone has a plan until somebody punches you in the face. So I think our notion of strategy, if our notion of strategy is just having a plan, then naturally the plan at the moment is thrown out the window. But our notion of strategy is this managing this, if you like, tension between the aspiration, our capability, in, in the face of a changing and oftentimes unpredictable environment, that that's the essence of strategy. And I would go back to your Drucker quote and say, now is the time, if you like, to critically analyze the strategy, if you like, and think about what assumptions have we are underpinning the strategy. Uh, what are the key assumptions that we've made a year ago or, or on an ongoing basis about how we position ourselves in, in a changing environment and ask ourselves to what extent those assumptions are now invalid, in which case we need to think about changing our strategy. Yeah, let me pull you up on a few of those because you've opened up yeah. a few a few scenes there. Sure. Uh, one of them is, I suppose, we don't know the ultimate um, base case of this virus, right? Which would see, seem to be a, a crucial input in any strategy. Yeah. Is it going to last another three months? Is it yeah. going to last another year? Is there going to be a vaccine, therapeutic yeah. drugs, etc.? Yeah. Do you actually need to know the answer to that to devise an effective strategy? I think one will one can make a certain contingency plan around that. I mean, there's going to be a couple of states of nature. A vaccine will be found, and I'd, I'd be I'm, I'm not I'm not a scientist, but you know, hopefully a vaccine will be found. But you know, or one can figure out that okay, a vaccine won't be found, in which case there's two states of nature: um, a vaccine a vaccine being discovered maybe reverting to something like the world we knew before. Uh, and naturally there would be changes, but it could be something like the world we knew before. If no vaccine is found, then we, or if we don't build up immunity, then, then the world looks very different. And of course, we also know that there have been a number of, a number of epidemics over the last 10 years, uh, which have been very significant. Now, fortunately, they didn't affect us too much in Ireland or in the Western world, but they certainly impacted Asia quite considerably. So again, one, one hopes that this doesn't occur, but the, the likelihood is, certainly looking at the recent past, that there may be further bad things that are going to happen to us in the future. So I think, I think agility uh, becomes suddenly important. And Pat, would you agree that one of the, the big decisions in putting this, this strategy, and they don't have to be a physical plan, as we all know, they might be just a, a set of decisions, but they could be a written document of some description, but is one of the big binary choices, are you going to invest for the future? Or are you going to conserve your resources? I think that's that, that to me, is a, a critical strategy problem, irrespective of the environment. And actually, the, the, the more you commit, if the world you see, if the world you're anticipating comes through, then, then you can win big. If it doesn't, then you can lose big. At the same time, having uh, being very, very flexible has costs as well. So trade, you know, making the trade-off between commitment and flexibility is, 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 a, is a critical thing. And I think what one, what one might see in the immediate future is that financial flexibility, if you like, in firms is going to become very important. So firms that have, had, have access to bank financing, firms that have cash reserves, firms that have a relatively large amount of slack, I think are going to be very well positioned naturally uh, in this crisis because a lot of firms will, are going to find it really difficult uh, to get through this, um, notwithstanding the, the valiant efforts of governments around the world to try and support them. But your point, the point you make earlier is critical. 
just how long is this going to last? Does that advantage the bigger firms than the, the cash rich firms, the ones that have a lot of assets? Do they have a kind of a, a almost a head start on the others? I think I, th- I think it does, and I think a lot of people, a lot of commentators, are suggesting that what one might see is that concentration levels in various industries may increase significantly through this crisis. In other words, that if you like smaller players, less financially you know secure players are either going to be bought or will simply go out of business. And so concentration levels in various industries might increase, which ultimately potentially reduces competition in those industries. Um, so, so I think there are certain outcomes from this crisis that, that we need to be very, very careful about. Uh, from a societal as well as an economic perspective. Now, as we know, there's a galaxy of companies over the decades have started in and around recessions, either just before them or after them or right in the middle of them. Um, I think of the likes of Microsoft, I think, started in the, the oil crisis of the 1970s. You go back to the, the earlier part of the century, you know, the GEs, the IBMs, all these companies sort of sprouted up at a, a time of trouble. I mean, are there nimble, agile startups that can take advantage of this environment, do you think? Well, I think there the, 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 the potentially are. And, and certainly at a very broad brush level, Emmett, one can think about just as we're living through at the moment and the types of things we're doing at the moment, the, the contrast between, if you like, digital businesses and bricks and mortar businesses uh, is, is, you know, the, the, the contrast is phenomenal. You know, Microsoft recently reported that really, um, at least not recently, the the crisis has had very little effect on their their performance. At the same time, you look at the retail level and firms like Debenhams and so on going out of business. So, I think there there is opportunity when you look at the performance of Zoom, um, what the platform which we're using we're currently you know, on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, you know. Again, we, we would have used it occasionally. Um, you know, in college. But there's been an explosion in usage. Um, in a way, this is a roll. Of the, this has been a roll of the dice. It's been a you know an exogenous event which very few people uh, forecast, and and naturally that 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 favors some and and disfavors others, and 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 that's in a way uh, fundamental to risk and uncertainty that we live in. But certainly, I think the the two implications are. Um, you know, firms that are financially flexible and have access to financial resources should do well. And secondly, and that will lead to potentially higher concentration levels in certain industries. And we'd be looking for the regulators and government to try and, yeah. but they may not either be interested or have the political support to do it. That, that's correct. Uh, and, and I think another aspect where regulation will become important is when you look at you know, the if you like the I won't say the the threats faced by by bricks and mortar businesses, but when one thinks about the banking system, you know, the amount of security that's held against bricks and mortar, the amount of uh, loans advanced against bricks and brick and mortar assets, um, there is likely to be a very significant impact in terms of not just cash flow problems for banks in the sense that many of their borrowers will not be able to repay. But the value of the security which they hold may also be significantly impaired. So I think that's also, I think, a potential cause for concern as as we move through this crisis. Yes, and that that sort of particular issue cropped up in the financial crisis. We saw how one could bleed into the other. So and then you're into 
taking provisions and, and impairments and so on, which is where yeah. all the trouble started the last time in 08, precisely. right? Precisely. And and I, I think I think the you know if if this is a fundamental dislocation in the in, in the economy and in particular how we work, I mean traditionally over the last you know number of years um, you know, the concern has been that there's been insufficient commercial space, let's say, available in Dublin um, for, for expanding businesses. And, and suddenly, you know, within two months, practically all of that commercial space is empty um, or much of it is empty. And, you know, the, so this, this will give people a taste for working at home, not, not necessarily all the time, but it certainly could change behavior patterns and work patterns very significantly. Where the, the the if you like the the premium or the efficacy of having you know large offices with which which convene large numbers of people, um, that 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 need may be attenuated in some way. I mean, we're all familiar with the idea of creative destruction. Hmm. And usually, it's about an economic event. This is obviously a health event. Yeah. But is is this uh, sort of a period in your view, Pat, where? Some companies won't make it, but other companies who are doing things more innovatively that are bringing new value into a particular sector will do well and be able to take advantage of all this um, tumult that's going on. Yeah, I would think so. And uh, But again, the, the question would be that how long is this situation going to last? Um, now, undoubtedly, our ability and our appetite actually to work remotely, our appetite to collaborate remotely, our appetite to work at home, uh, has has no doubt you know if it hasn't if our appetite hasn't increased certainly the the availability to do it has increased so I think I think products and services that facilitate that I think you know will will be very attractive you know I would anticipate that when this is over there will be an upsurge of people going out to you know if we can to restaurants and pubs and so on and that's well and good but that that might be just a short blip because the other the other thing one anticipates with with potentially a lot of business failures and people finding it hard to get back to work that disposable income levels will probably be reduced and you know so consumer confidence might might be impacted negatively again in the immediate term after the the crisis passes hopefully yeah there does seem to be a shift um the early indications or the early view was that a v-shape was the most likely outcome that seems to be more a minority view and we're looking at u-shapes or w-shapes depending on where you want to go so the longer this grinds on the chances of a quick pull on a string or it rebounds back quickly seems to be moving a bit into the the background at this point I, I agree, and I think certainly looking at most of the commentary, as you suggest, you know, certainly the World Bank um, would be of the view that it's a it's more of a U shape, and the <laughs> the bottom part of the U. How long is that? Um, so I think I think the longer this goes on, I mean, it will lead to conservatism. It probably will lead to increased savings rates as people, oddly enough, as people try to, if you like, think about their personal balance sheet. And I mentioned earlier about firms having financial flexibility. I think increasingly people will be concerned about their own personal financial flexibility. And so, you know, we might anticipate even higher increases in savings rates as people seek to, even even younger people seek to give them the, give themselves the financial resilience uh, to withstand shocks that weren't anticipated. Because certainly this is unprecedented and certainly in my lifetime, and I'm sufficiently grey-haired to, to, to think that most younger people have certainly never experienced anything like this. And and I think it's 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 a shock to the way we think about ourselves. It's a shock to the way we think about how, how our lives progress. 
And therefore, I think there could be an increased conservatism, uh, financial conservatism, as a result of this. And looking more locally, just drilling down for Ireland specifically, mm. um, how, how do you see the business environment just in Ireland on its own? Well, how do you see that yeah. shaping up? Yeah, I think I think I think the comments we made earlier are are, are still appropriate in terms of potentially increased savings rates, um, consumer confidence. I think Ireland has a particular maybe have some particular challenges as well. I mean, one of the things geopolitically that one is looking at is this tension between the US, China, and to a certain extent, Europe. And if you like, a, a loss or a, a decrease in globalization, uh, a decrease in internationalization, um, and, and in many ways, the Irish economy being a small open economy is very susceptible to changes in, in patterns of international trade and international foreign direct investment. So I think I think a couple of things. I think anything that decreases international trade is is probably not great for Ireland. Uh, I also think the certainly the rhetoric coming from the the Trump administration on foreign direct investment on repatriation um, is 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 somewhat worrying. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that most foreign direct investment here is is targeted at the European market and is not deflecting resources necessarily from the U.S. market, but I do think that 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 that, that issue. Will will be of of importance and and you know significance to Ireland, and so I think looking at alternative sources of foreign direct investment will be important, and and just making sure that that with again with Brexit, that our our diplomatic efforts in Europe, and uh, that we find allies quickly with other small countries perhaps to ensure that our our incentive structure and so on for 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 foreign multinationals remains as intact as it possibly can be. So I think the the, the geopolitical changes in the world are, are probably not positive from Ireland's perspective. And uh, I think that will be challenging to the IDA and to the government in terms of maintaining, uh, maintaining Ireland as, a, as a, a locus of foreign direct investment, but also um, that the, the overall level of foreign direct investment may decrease and, and that could have an impact. That could have an impact. Okay, well, that's a, I watched this space one, uh, particularly in November when the election is due to happen between uh, yeah. President Trump and candidate um, Biden. We'll see how that one goes. In terms of the nitty gritty of making the strategy to deal with all these issues you're talking about, I mean, would you advocate any of the big companies or maybe even the smaller ones get their board together? Let's just tear up what we have for the current period and go again or would you say hold on a few months let's see how this plays out then look at the marketplace we operate in so so just in a practical sense yeah. what should a boardroom be doing I, I think a board and maybe before it gets to the board even the senior management team should be really looking at what the view is on, on various contingencies on how long they, they think this period will last but i certainly think the um, the, the 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 critical thing is, you know, to what extent can financial resources be be preserved um, to maintain the to maintain the organisation, to maintain the stability of the organisation, and and are there creative ways of generating alternative revenue streams um, to 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 support a business? I think that that's one thing I do. I think the second thing I do is I'd really think through. You know, if you like, the, the, as I said earlier, the assumptions that underpin the current strategy, um, and it, what, these aren't the assumptions that we normally sees written down in the business plan, such as interest rates are going to be so much, and the exchange rate with the US dollar will be so much, and so on. So these, I'm not talking about the explicit assumptions, but I'm talking more about the implicit assumptions. 
you know, the, 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 the impetus assumptions around which customers we serve, the impetus assumptions around which distribution channels we use, the implicit assumptions about which markets we go after and which market segments, and really to critically analyze what those implicit assumptions are to surface them and to see if they, if they are likely to still hold true in the medium term. And so, you know, in order to do that, I think we really need to have a fairly robust exchange um, across, the, across both the board table and the senior management table around the assumptions that we've made and, and, and the willingness to surface them. And, and that naturally presumes a, a level of psychological safety, perhaps, in among top management teams um, that will facilitate the, the challenging, the surfacing and challenging of assumptions. And so that leads on to sort of the organizational mechanisms that one needs to do that. And so, you know, the devil's advocacy at a minimum would be, would be a, an approach that I'd, I'd strongly recommend because, again, to go back to your Drucker point, it, it is the assumptions and the, the assumptions that are false that are going to undermine any strategy. So being aware of what the assumptions are and surfacing those assumptions becomes absolutely critical. And isn't there a great uh, tale of hubris in a lot of these things? If you think of the world as you have your your conservers, your conservative people who say, you know, cash flow management is everything here, not spending, just tighten the belts and, and weather the storm versus the, the expanders, the ones that mm. want to do it bravely and do the deals and take more market share. There's hubris on both sides of that, isn't there? I mean, you can overshoot on either side of that spectrum. You can overshoot on either side of that spectrum. And, and, that's, not, and that's not a recommendation to, take, to play necessarily some middle middle ground but it is to think about what's the this combination of aspiration versus capability versus the assumptions we're making about the environment and and sort of keeping those three things in 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 creative tension and managing that tension becomes important and i think for a management team it's it's, what's absolutely vital is that there is robust debate um, but there is, at the end of the day, a, a commitment to a course of action. Uh, again, the, the, the great Cyrus the Great, I think, the Persian king, you know, uh, sort of recommended in all strategic decision making, and, and maybe, and, and this is one I firmly believe in, that you should have diversity in council and unity of command. Um, that really the diversity in council becomes really important here. You want people to, to identify, and you may want to engage people who aren't necessarily on the top management team in these debates, um, perhaps younger people, perhaps people who are, are not as wedded to the status quo as, as the existing management team. So you want to generate a very good debate to, again, surface the assumptions, evaluate them, and think about what's the best course of action, um, given, given our view and, our, oddly enough, our assumptions about how the world is going to look like over the next six to 12 months. I saw in recent days Uber looking to do an acquisition in the States. So the whole um, shiny, bright bauble that is an M&A deal will flash in front of some companies if they have the financial yeah. resources in the first place. Is that is that tend to be the, the thing that tempts in the people who want to expand very uh, quickly? I think, I think it will. Uh, that's why I said earlier, I think this notion of financial flexibility is going, you know, is going to be very, very important. I think firms that have access to financial resources or ones who are financially flexible may go, you know, may become quite acquisitive. And actually, that that acquisition typically takes out a competitor, <laughs> expands market share, and reduces overall competition in an industry. So I think that that I think is a likely outcome in many industries where concentration levels will increase. 
And, and that brings us back to a point we made earlier where, you know, if you like, regulation is going to be very important. And I also think just given the scale of the economic stimulus that's been uh, pursued by practically every government in the world, I think the, the, the other aspect of the business environment that's going to change is relationships with government uh, are going to be very, very important. Uh, government, if you like, one thing we've learned in this crisis is that big government can act uh, and big government has acted and has acted very quickly. Um, and so I would see that whereas the last sort of 30 years has been advocacy of, advocacy of smaller government, I think, I think the role of big government is, is, going to, is going to have its day for the foreseeable future, if only for the reason that in the, intruded into the economy so much and so that that, that will, um, big government will be, will be here to stay for quite a while. And it's quite possible that the big companies and big government might see their interests reflected in each other. You know, there's sort of a, I wouldn't use the word cabal, but there's a certain yeah. element of both sides being happy enough with their arrangement. Yes. Yeah. Again, that's right. And and then to what extent does that impact, the, if you like, the vitality of an economy, um, the level of innovation in an economy and the level of ultimately competitiveness in the economy? Um, so so these are these are big issues, I think, that we need to consider as as we work through this crisis. Um, Pat, as somebody who watches strategy and watches its implementation very closely, can I shift you slightly out of the, 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 the business and organizational space into the government space briefly and, and, and tell me yeah. this is not your zone at all, but yeah. they've been practicing strategy. They've been sort of trying yeah. different things. There's this herd immunity stuff. There's mm. this whole hammer and the dance, they call it in, in another context. I mean, the way the governments globally are trying to do this, they're, they're trying to do certain things, seeing does it work and moving on to something else. I mean, how have you viewed how the governments of the world have so far, the first few months of this at least, implemented their strategy? Again, it's this aspiration versus capability tension uh, that you see played out in different ways across the world. Being very clear about what the aspiration is, I, th- I think in this country we were very, it was very clear that the aspiration was to, to, to flatten the curve, to ensure that you know, intensive care particularly was not overwhelmed um throughout throughout the the crisis and i think that that has largely been been delivered i think the other thing though that i would say with any strategy is that one needs to be careful about what what metrics one is using to to both guide the strategy and to evaluate it and so i think one of the things that you know we one needs to think about is what's the range of metrics that we want to make sure we have and certainly flattening the curve is one but there could be other aspects of healthcare that, that we, we might have keyed in on as well. Um, so I think that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect of it is this transition. And again, I'm, I'm not a medical scientist or an epidemiologist, but the, the tension at the moment between, if you like, flattening the curve through isolation, through everyone isolating, and flattening the curve or maintaining some level of, of uh, low level of incidence by localized isolation, and, and that requires tracking and tracing. Um, so I think, I think these are, you know, if you like, fundamentally, although the objective is the same, they are, and one may evolve from the other. They are fundamentally different strategies to, to achieve the same outcome, and the the, the costs and benefits about those strategies are very different. You know, at the moment, we're facing, if you like, total lockdown of practically everyone in the population with enormous costs and, and a benefit to flattening the curve. Tracking and tracing, 
you know, perhaps the costs are, in terms of the economic costs, maybe lower because we could focus our attention on people who are either symptomatic or are about to be. And so ask them, asking them or forcing them to isolate for, for the, the quarantine period. And so these are very different. These, to me, are, are quite different approaches. Um, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see just how, how they're going to play out um, and how they're certainly going to play out this country over the, over the foreseeable future. And certainly I think the aspiration is to have a very significant tracking and tracing uh, approach, which will facilitate us getting out of total lockdown and, and re-energizing the economy. I would have thought that's that's the way to go. But obviously, the capability to do that, um, it's, it's easier said perhaps than done. Yeah, I suppose it's a more subtle policy prescription, isn't it? Trying to do all these things, you need a lot of machinery, you need a lot of yep. people, you need a lot of skilled staff. Uh, yeah. Just asking people to stay at home, it's not easy either, but it doesn't no. need as much subtlety to it, I suppose. That's, that's, that's precisely it. It's, it's, it's the, the, the latter approach is much more subtle and undoubtedly requires a lot more, as you say, effort and a range of capabilities where a, a, a more simple, if you like, approach uh, of everyone locked down is, is, is more amenable to implementation, perhaps. Well, everyone has to think about strategy, government, or business, Pat. You're absolutely right. You've given me some great quotes from kings and generals <laughs> to sort of feed on over the next few weeks. And you couldn't be a strategy lecturer without having a quote from a general. You have to admit, this absolutely. is this is bread and butter for the whole discipline, right? This is Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, some great reflections there, Pat. Thank you Thanks. for joining us on the podcast today. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks.